0: So we're in Colossians chapter 3. Hopefully we'll pick up there where we left off. I want to give you maybe a recap of where we've been and why we've been doing what we've been doing. Uh, We think it's a really dangerous thing to just gather together and let our opinions steer our direction as a group of people. And so what we're really passionate about is letting God's word speak to us and guide us. And so the next thing that we talk about each week is the next thing that we find in the particular scripture in which we're diving. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a letter written, written to a church, a young church similar to a church like us that hasn't been meeting together for very long, but at the same time, we want to have our DNA deeply rooted into the right things we ought to believe about Jesus and the ways in which we ought to live that out. And there's no better place probably in all of Scripture to have all of that piled into four brief chapters than in this letter written by Paul, a teacher and leader to this church. Now, I warned you before, and I'll keep it up. Um, every time we read out of Colossians, it's like trying to drink out of a fire hose. Um, there is just more coming at you than you can possibly handle. And so there's more, there's more going on here than in our brief time that we could ever begin to cover. Uh, and, and again, unless you think we should maybe do like a binge preaching, right, or something, maybe for like six or seven hours, which we could probably cover a little bit more. If you got that kind of attention span, that's great. I won't be here. Um, but for the next 40 minutes... We're going to dig into God's Word and see what it might have to speak to us, just like we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. So this letter written to this church, similar to us, starts off setting some of the loftiest standards and some of the highest and deepest and most complicated language to describe how great Jesus is and to explain what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us. That Jesus has done something. This man who came and lived and died and rose again, he did not stay dead accomplish something in doing so and he is God he is the creator of the universe the creator of the universe who has the power to forgive and to show wrath and justice and mercy he is God walking around in a human body he is the word the eternal speaking of God to create and form and shape the universe and God's people walking around incarnate taking on flesh He is eternal. He's been around forever. He is God, as John tells us. Jesus not only was with God in the beginning, but He is God. And in some miraculous, mysterious way, our God, so that we would know that He would not forsake us or leave us, came to be with us and to suffer alongside us, even to suffer for us and in our place. And so, Colossians tells us that this Jesus is is the reason the church exists. He's the firstborn, having the firstborn authority. For this culture to be the firstborn son of the Father means that you have the authority, you have the reign over that which the Father gives to the firstborn, and Jesus is the firstborn of creation, so that we would know that Jesus has all power and authority over all that's been created, but He's also the firstborn of the dead, so that we know that Jesus has power and authority given Him by God over even death. Which is the thing we're celebrating in this season as we look forward to Easter in the coming weeks. Jesus is not just a man, but he is God. He's present. He is the fullness of God, all the deity in human flesh. And all the mysteries of God, all the questions that, the might, that we might have in our minds about God are answered, they're revealed to us in Jesus. And if you ever want to know what is God like and what does God want for us, we look at Jesus and we have the answers. We see that God is merciful. God is kind, God is good. God gives us pardon and redemption. God takes that which is broken and makes it into something new. We know that because we see Jesus. And the temptation is to hear that and to believe that, to give intellectual assent to that, but then want to add something to it. Like, yeah, that's great, I believe that, but there's got to be more to it. I've got to be able to do something here. There's got to be something I'm, in, I'm required to do. There must be something I can accomplish on God's behalf. And so what we have in this first church is the temptation to lean on our own understanding. And this church started to build some particular religious practices that while they had good intentions, ultimately did damage because they pointed away from the sufficiency and goodness of Jesus. In fact, there's an entire heresy built around this idea by a guy by the name of Pelagius, and we'll talk about him later. That they said, yeah, Jesus is good, we appreciate that, but now you need to go to work. You need to do something. Jesus can't redeem you and save you unless you do something. But we see here that's not the case, that God, in his mercy, before we even knew we were broken, had already sent his son to die, had already made a plan to transfer us out of the dark lives we live into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we focus our eyes on Jesus. We focus on him. We spend more of our time and attention on what he has done than what we might do. Because what he has done is greater than all that we might do or ever have done. And so for you who are rebellious, there's good news. There's nothing terrible that you can do. There is nothing so terrible that you can do that is greater than what Jesus has done for you. But the gospel also for you that are highly religious, there is nothing that you can do so good that it will even scratch the surface or hold a candle to the good thing that Jesus has done for you. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, we pick up, we're going to take only a few verses today and dig into them and begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. So if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things That are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This Jesus has done something. This Jesus has revealed something to us about God that changes everything. This Jesus is Lord. This Jesus is King. He's bringing a kingdom to earth. He's doing something on our behalf. And when we set our minds on this, when we set our hearts on this, it changes everything. I would argue that most of what we believe that we're taught out of the New Testament can be alluded to or pointed to or somehow summarized in these four verses. Jesus has done something. And if Jesus has done it, then to focus on that changes everything else. And to focus away from that robs the joy and the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. So let's start. First thing we see here, there is a reality beyond what we can perceive with our five senses. Did you catch that? Set your minds on the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above us and not just the things that are around us. Now this is a tricky thing, this is kind of an up or down, this is a perspective thing, but there's a world, there's a heaven that the Bible teaches of, a a perfect place, and it's perfect because God is fully present there, God is fully manifest there. And the Bible teaches us that that our God who, who gave the perfect garden to those of us in Adam and Eve who broke it and destroyed it because of our rebellious nature, wants to restore that joy to us for eternity by drawing us into Himself in His presence forever and ever. This heaven is a real thing. It's a spiritual reality. And I'm just as a side note, the reason that heaven is awesome is not because of the stuff that's there. Beware of that. But the reason that heaven is awesome is because Jesus is there. I, I, I throw that out there because people who would call themselves Christians, if you, if you push them on this, they really are looking forward to a pie in the sky... It's going to really pan out great for them, but if you really push them on it, it's really awesome because you get like streets of gold. Uh, there's a sea and there's, or a crystal sea and there's, there's mansions, right? But you don't really need Jesus for any of that, do you? You just need to move to Boca Raton, right? You don't, you don't need Jesus for that kind of heaven. And that's not the heaven that the Bible teaches about. The beauty of heaven is not that there are all these pleasures, but the beauty of heaven is that the greatest pleasure is fulfilled, that we, were, we will be with our God who created us for Him. That's a big deal. When I travel, when I go away from home, and I find myself being homesick and I want to be back home, I don't long just for the comfort of my own bed. I do. I don't long just for my couch or my chair. I mean, I miss those things. But if I was away from home and the thing that I wanted more than anything upon my return home is to be in bed or to be in my couch or on my chair, then I've missed the coolest thing about my house. I miss being away from home because that's where my wife and my girls are. And I long to be home. Not because of the couch and the bed and the chair, but because of the people that are in those things, bouncing off of those things, right? That's where my joy ultimately is found. And we have the same thing, that there is a heaven, there is a thing, there is a place that God has created for our eternal joy to fulfill His most glorious and grand plan that we would be with Him forever. And it's awesome, not because of the stuff that's there, but because our Father is there. and We will never again be separated from Him. We long for it. And it's real, and it's in, it, there's an existence in which God is reigning perfectly and completely. It's breaking into what exists now, but there is a perfect existence that we refer to here as heaven. It says above. Now, above, that's a weird thing. Mysteriously, we don't know where heaven is. It's not on the map. Even above, if you think in certain terms, if you zoom out far enough, above is a weird word. I mean, above is only a kind of a human word that we understand with relation to gravity. Right? I mean, there's there's not really an up or down. There's more of just the force of gravity pulling to the center of the earth. But we're so small and the earth is so big and the force of gravity is so great that this seems like up and down from where we're standing. But you all know if you've been through elementary... Uh, you know, an elementary science class—you can kind of understand. There, there's more going on than just up and down. There's there's a vastness of all creation, and so it's not like there's—I don't know—a a double-decker universe. Although maybe string theory has has some things to inform us about that. But like there's—it's not like there's above. You go up the stairs above all things. There's there's this other place, and if you just jump in a spaceship and go far enough, you can make it make it mind you if you go up rather than down which again seems pretty relative but instead this is a spiritual reality this is a spiritual existence this is something that, as jesus would say is his kingdom that is not of this world it doesn't make sense as we would try to explain it and there's a reality that exists beyond what we can perceive with our own five senses Here's good news. The first thing we see here, there's good news. This is not all there is. This is not it. It's incredibly good news. I mean, you may love your job, but here's good news even if you don't. This is not all there is. It's incredibly good news. This is not all there is to it. There's more. And our God has in his infinite desire for his glory and his grace Wants to share that with us. There's more. And instead of leaving us and abandoning us, he came to bring that kingdom to be a reality here. Such that John the Baptist and Jesus began both of their public ministries by saying, Hey, repent, change the way you think. Because there is a kingdom and it's on his way. And there is a God who is king and he's a good king. There's more. There is more. Good or bad, there's more. There's more than your broken family There's a perfect father. There's more than the money you're able to make in this lifetime. There's more. There are treasures that are eternal in nature, and our God wants to pour them out for you forever and ever. There really is more. And if you ever find yourself at the end of your rope thinking, this really is rough, if you're just the optimistic person, forget what I'm saying because you don't. This doesn't make sense to you. But for the rest of us, if we ever get to that point of frustration and think there's got to be more than this. I have good news. There is infinitely more. God has a plan. God is doing something, and God is a kingdom that's breaking into our current reality, and we see that most vividly in Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like when God's kingdom is coming. Looks like Jesus, and paradoxically. Even though we are in the world, there is more than the world that God has for us. So be encouraged. There's more going on in the world than we can possibly see. There's something above it. And the joy that we get is when we begin to get a glimpse of that kingdom breaking in in Jesus and we set our minds and hearts on it rather than what exists now. So be encouraged. There's more than meets the eye. There's more than your five senses can perceive and it's infinitely better than what you think you have now. God wants to make it available to us. So we want to set our hearts and our minds on this. And this is important because the last couple of chapters, the temptation of this church was to focus more on their religious practices, for example, circumcision, and to focus more on their religious practices, like whether they ate or drank, or what they ate or what they drank, or what days they got together, or what days they didn't, or the, the religious practices that meant a great deal, but they were ultimately just a shadow of Jesus who is the actual substance of these practices. And to focus more on those practices is to be distracted from Jesus who is the substance in all things. He's it. He's the goal. And to only get the religious practice, that which you can see, touch, and feel, and participate in, is to miss out on the greater kingdom that God has for us. This is good. This is incredibly good news. Have you ever, even now, been bored... With this thing that even though it's God's people, it's called the church. Have you ever been disappointed or bored with church? It's okay, I know, maybe even right now, right? That's cool. Good news. This isn't all there is. Good news. This thing I'm telling you about, this Jesus guy that I'm telling you about, one day you're going to see him, and we're all going to shut up. We're not going to talk about him anymore. We're just going to bow down and worship him. It's, it, there's more. It's going to be awesome. And this moment of boredom or this disgust that we have for the church, God's people here on earth, It's meant to just be a shadow of the good thing that Jesus is bringing ultimately. It's meant to be just a picture, a small picture. And we're currently living this paradox of trying to understand that Jesus has done something for us, and yet at the same time live in light of it such that we have no loyalties here on this earth. So if you ever get frustrated, even with things that are supposed to be good, if the thing that promises joy doesn't ultimately fulfill it, There's good news. Set your heart on that which is above, that which is eternal. Otherwise, you just get the shadows. Jesus is a king of this kingdom. This kingdom is not only real and it's not only perfect for all of us, but Jesus is king. This is really good news as well. Because this Jesus is a different kind of king. In fact, his kingdom is upside down. Rather than a kingdom that breaks in Rather than a kingdom that comes and pillages and rapes and destroys and takes by violence and threat of violence whatever it wants, this kingdom is the victim of violence. And rather than a kingdom being led by a king who sends other people to die for him, this kingdom's different. It's upside down. This kingdom is led by a king who died so that no one else in the kingdom would die at all. It's upside down. The last in this kingdom are going to be the first. The first are going to be last. And if you want to be exalted, if you want to inherit all this good stuff in this earth, you don't do so by force. You do so in this kingdom by meekness. Because this king is humble. This king is good and loving. And he doesn't grasp and take whatever he wants by force, but instead he becomes the victim of that force so that you and I would have the benefit. Kingdom is real. It's here. It's now. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not something that hopefully one day we'll get. But we begin to see evidence of it now. It's breaking in. And Jesus was the inaugural moment that we would know that God is real and God is for us and His kingdom is real and His kingdom is a blessing. And we see that in Jesus Christ. We see it when we see Jesus' mercy. We see it when we see Jesus' healing. This kingdom is perfect. There's There's no brokenness. There's no tears. And So when we think about What is above and a kingdom that is to come, we set our minds on what it would be like if Jesus really were the king. What would it be like? What would it be like if Jesus were king in your workplace? What would it be like if Jesus made the rules and not executive CEOs or your supervisor? What would it look like if Jesus really were in charge? And what would it look like if Jesus ran for president? What would it look like if Jesus were in charge of your family? What'd it look like if Jesus was king in your own heart? Wouldn't your decisions, wouldn't your relationships start to look different? I mean, wouldn't it be a lot better if the guy in charge of where you work or your household was the guy who's infinitely perfect, infinitely good, and infinitely merciful? And we makes the judge's ruling parents, he's not doing it out of anger or frustration, but he's doing it out of his infinite goodness. Wouldn't that be different? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Because that's the kind of king that we have, and that's the kind of kingdom that he creates that we're meant to reflect upon, that we're meant to begin to see in our world. We get a very, very, very small glimpse of it in times like this when the people of God gather together to celebrate this good king. It's imperfect, I get it, it's not perfect, but it's a tiny little glimpse of a group of people that are more loyal to something that God has done for them than they are to anything else. We could go around the room and talk about all the ways in which we probably disagree politically, socially. There's a lot of hot topics going on right now. Um, what you eat, what you do, it's not any different than Colossians. It's kind of a big deal. Whether there's gluten, GMOs in it, or, I mean, you want to pick a fight, let's just go, right? Let's, yoga pants, apparently the color of a dress, that's not even a thing, right? It's not real. It's just something to fight about. But if we want to go around the room, we could fight about those things. But what if we were a group of people here on this earth who had a loyalty because of Jesus Christ, had a loyalty to Him above all things? Wouldn't our conviction about those other things start to make less conflict? Wouldn't we be able to show mercy and grace to those people who, I guess, literally see different colors? See the world differently and live differently? And it's not perfect. I get it. We all have opinions and convictions in here that, that aren't loyal to Jesus, but, but isn't this a beginning of a glimpse? Even in this moment, as you're stopped and you're sitting in a seat, aren't we talking about and thinking about something bigger than ourselves? Isn't Jesus the topic of conversation, and it makes those other things at least a little less important? It's not perfect. We're still people. But it becomes a picture in this community we call the church, where we start to live as though the King has come and made all the difference. We set our sights on this. This isn't just an affirmation, and it's not just an expression of personal devotion. Evidently, according to this particular passage, it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of the way the world is ordered. And paradoxically, we, we live knowing the tension that God's doing something that's not complete. So I want to parse out some of the things going on here. It says, if if you've been raised with Christ, then we keep seeking or seek the things that are above. So there's two different tenses, and I would summarize most of the Bible by probably lumping them into these two different tenses. And that is what's known as the imperative and the indicative. The imperative, that's if you're a good grammar nerd, that, those are commands. Those are things you should do. So write the Ten Commandments. They're imperatives, thou shalt not. You better do, or you should do, or you should do this. And they're throughout scripture. There's law, there's commands. Even for the rest of the time that we're in the Colossians, in this book, the Colossians, the, the book to the Colossians, there's like, there's a bunch of imperatives. You should do this. Hey, dads, do this. Fathers, do this, right? Kids, do this. Husbands, you should look like this. Wives, you should look like this. This, this is what it looks like when the gospel begins to take root and create a community of people. This is what it looks like. These are the shoulds, these are the imperatives. It's good advice. You ought to do it, and shame on you if you don't. But there's also the indicative. There's the statement of things that have already come to pass, things that God has already done. Not that you and I should do, but we celebrate because God already did. So yes, you should do those things, but ultimately, I'm afraid, and as we talk about this, this is one of our biggest loyalties in gospel community, where we experience the gospel in community, like, one of the biggest things is that most people who would call themselves a Christian live in the world of good advice, where you ought to do this and shame on you if you don't. And they miss the difference between the good advice and the good news, is that if you do or you don't, God has already done something on your behalf to make it right. And we see both of them played out here, the already and the not yet. Already Jesus died for your sin. So yes, stop sinning. But good news, when it happens, Jesus has already died in your place to make that right. There is no sin that you and I can confess or even attempt to cover up for which God has not already covered and atoned for in Jesus Christ. It's already done. But then there's the not yet. So here's the already... You have been raised with Christ. And when you know this and when this changes the way you see the world, when you start to see the kingdom that God is bringing that is upside down, it's not anything like the kingdoms of this world, then once you see that and you've been raised and you have union with Christ in this, then start seeking the things of above. Jesus already did it, so now you live in light of it. It's important that we do not get those out of order. As in, you better do this so that Jesus will die in your place. Instead, we believe that we can do this now that we know Jesus has died in our place. And this kind of spiritual reality really is all throughout the New Testament. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, according to Philippians 3. That right now we're strangers and we're exiles here on the earth in Hebrews chapter 11. In Philippians chapter 2, we're working this inner life out, this spiritual life out, this salvation that God has accomplished for us. We're believing it and we're working it out. We're living out this reality, our union with God. Paul emphasizes the centrality of Christ in this all throughout this book. But it's not just here. It's everywhere. And one of the greatest failures that we might have is to misunderstand and to go running after something that, as if we can grasp it for ourselves, not realizing that God has already paid for it and accomplished it for us on our behalf. So make sure you see the difference between what God has done and what we ought to do. And realize that God started this thing before the foundation of the world was laid. Our God sent His Son to be slain on our behalf. And our union with Christ trades, the the word that we use is is called imputation. And it trades what we deserve for what Jesus deserves. And Jesus in His mercy makes this new kingdom a reality in our life by trading places with us. And all of the things that you and I have failed to do, all the ways in which the shoulds, the imperatives, have failed to change our hearts, He's willing to wear Himself. So that thou shalt not, that we fail to obey, the covetousness, the anger, the hatred, our lust, our desire to have things other than God This rebellion before God, our God wanted to wear Himself so that the sin and rebellion for which the wrath of God is being poured out, instead of being poured out on you and me and crushing you and me, the Father, the Bible tells us, was pleased instead to crush His Son so that you and I would have nothing but the joy and the reward that the perfect and sinless Son deserved for Himself. We're living this out. We're working this thing out. So show mercy, all right? So if you've ever been frustrated, um, and if you've ever been frustrated with the way um, that, that this plays itself out, if you've ever been like, turned off by a church, even now, well then show mercy, okay? Show mercy, because our purpose in the world is to gradually, piece by piece, by God's grace, to live out the thing that He's accomplished for us. So we're hypocrites, Show mercy to us. We're trying to live this out. We're trying to work this out. We're trying to live and obey the imperatives, the shoulds, in light of the indicatives, the facts that Jesus has already set in place on our behalf. Why would we do this? Because Jesus is King. Jesus is a Lord. And ultimately, because of His goodness, He has taken us and united us with himself. Did you catch those words? For you now have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're dead. So there's a statute of limitations on crimes that you commit in this world, okay? And that statute of limitations is up once you're dead. That's it. They cannot prosecute you for crimes that you've committed once you've died, it's impossible. In fact, we see this in the death penalty. That's the ultimate limit. The ultimate limit is reached at this point. When you're dead, you cannot be punished for your wrongdoing. Statute of limitations is up. And what does it say about us with respect to our sin and our identity before God as sinners, as broken and rebellious people who, when we have the choice, would rather have the trinkets and joys and pleasures of this world rather than the eternal joys that God wants to pour out on us forever and ever. And when we do that, instead of pouring out that wrath onto us, apparently the statute of limitations has been reached because we are now dead. Dead. We're dead. And now our life is not a life defined by rebellion or even religiosity, but our life is defined by being hidden in Christ. And now our life, it says, is Christ. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. You have died, and now you are hidden in Christ. The things that seem to be so important, I will state the obvious, are much less important to you once you are dead. Write write your will however you want, but the truth is that they're going to do whatever they want to when you're gone. Right? There was, I remember uh, I saw this in a family play out. You know, This, this guy uh, planned out his funeral, and he wanted, he, these are the songs that he wanted played at his funeral, and uh, his family came in and sang all different songs. You know why? Because the guy was dead. You lose a big vote. You lose your influence when you're in a box that they drop in the ground. It's, it's, it's kind of a thing. You no longer have that influence. You no longer have a say-so. And this is apparently is an incredibly good thing because now we're also dead to all the punishment that we deserve. And even though we lose our say-so, we gain something by being in Christ. And we're hidden with Christ. And although the wages of sin is death, therefore we must die, there's a miraculous thing that takes place when we're united with Christ, and we celebrate this every Easter, that Jesus, along with us, don't stay dead. It's an amazing thing that being united with Christ, we don't avoid death, but instead we overcome death. And what an amazingly comforting and encouraging thing that our Jesus, our God and King Jesus, didn't defeat death by outsmarting death. He didn't defeat death by outrunning death. He didn't cheat death. Instead, He bore the full weight of death. He bore the marks and scars and bled until He was death and yet still stood victorious over death. So that you and I would know, we're not going to cheat death. We're not going to avoid death, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, we have the victory in Him even over death. One day, when you and I are dust and ashes six feet under the ground, the dead, as the Bible tells us, who are in Christ will rise. And the new creation that we celebrate Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter. Will be the celebration that we recount forever and ever. That that which once held us captive is now gone. Because though while we were united with Christ in His death, and therefore removed and assuaged of the guilt of our the due penalty for our sin, we are also united Christ in His victory, and He is now our life. It's a paradox. We set our minds on things that are above. We set our hearts on things that are above because now Jesus is our life. And the life to be revealed has been shown to us fully all the mysteries of God in Jesus Christ. So, what does this mean? Let's start by just even asking a practical question What takes up most of your time? What takes up most of your energy? What's the thing you stress about the most? Even deeper, I would ask this. What's the thing that if you lost it, you would cease to have a reason to live? What's the thing that if this week you got that phone call on a Thursday afternoon, what's the thing that if it was taken away would rob you of your desire to live? What's the thing that if it it was taken from you would have no desire to go on? Because if it isn't Christ and His goodness and the identity that He has given to you and me as sons and daughters of the Most High God, then beware, that thing is perishing. There is nothing that you and I now possess or celebrate on this earth that one day will not be at the middle of a landfill. There isn't anything that dust doesn't ultimately collect upon and there isn't anything that ultimately doesn't tarnish and on a long enough timeline everything's biodegradable and there's nothing to which you and i cling that won't ultimately go away unless our hearts and minds are set on the one gift that god will never take back the gift the identity of adopted sons and daughters So here's my word to you. So you find yourself in a place, maybe maybe you're high stress, and this thing, I'm over here talking about Jesus, and you're like, that's crazy. Well, Let me just play out a scenario. The thing that stresses you out and controls you the most, in fact, maybe tells you where to live and what to do, that thing has a shelf life. It is a shelf life. And if it doesn't, you do. And so you may luck out and retire before your life Right, comes to its end. But even if you manage to die before your career does, and it goes on, it will end. Like we all agree, none of us should still be selling videotapes and cassette tapes and eight track tapes, right? It's not that we don't like music anymore. That thing has a shelf life. And as cool as you think the things in your life are, just fast forward a couple hundred years, and they will be just as obsolete, they will be just as useless. They will be at, they'll they'll take an old building if it's still standing and they'll retrofit it, because retro is another cool word for old, and they'll start selling it and it's called an antique. And they'll go, I wonder what it was like when they had iPads. What a bunch of idiots. How primitive. It has a shelf life. And if you find yourself tied to those things, if ultimately 100 years from now the thing that you've defined yourself by is still in existence, good for you. But if it's not, I have good news. Maybe God's brought you to a place. Maybe God has opened your eyes to this thing that Jesus is doing and maybe he's stirring in you a hunger to have something in your life that will last forever. Maybe God is stirring in you a hunger for something that will last longer than the things to which you now cling. Trust in him. He's a good king. He's a good king. He doesn't send his people to die for his kingdom. He dies for his people in his kingdom. He's a good king. He's a merciful king. Instead of judging the people who are lawless, He wears their judgment publicly and shames their judgment so that you and I would have joy. And the gifts and praise that He ultimately deserves by Himself, it says here in verse 4, He shares with us. He brings us along in that glory. Here's the picture I would paint what it looks like to see ultimate reality and to begin to live accordingly. Maybe primitive, but when I was a young child, um, my father would mow the lawn and just like any young boy um, before he becomes a teenager and thinks he's smarter than his dad, I wanted to be like my dad. And one of my favorite things to do uh, was to, I'm going to use quotes here, help my dad mow the lawn. So, Some of the young boys, you know what I'm talking about, dad would get the bush mower, he'd mow the lawn, and I had my little clicking. um, Later, people had like mowers that shot bubbles out. That was cool. I wasn't that cool. Um, I had like a hand-me-down from my cousin, old toy mower, and it just kind of made some clicking noise as it went over the grass. Just kind of went over the grass. And I would follow my dad as he would mow the lawn, and I would help him by pushing my toy mower along behind him. There's two weird metaphors going on here that I think might gain us some traction as we think about our lives in christ on this earth the first one is that thanks be to god jesus has borne the penalty of our rebellion and our sin for us and thanks be to god he has paid the debt he has canceled it and he has nailed it to the cross as we saw in chapter two such that you and i get to celebrate the finished and completed work of jesus Thank goodness that the grass wasn't, and the the mowing of the grass wasn't dependent upon my little toy fake lawnmower. There was someone bigger and better than me that went by and did it. But the second thing I see is all that was left for me to do was just enjoy walking in the footsteps of my dad. He was really mowing. I now know that's kind of a pain, and it seems ironic that we would play. I think it's, I think it's good mind control. Uh, we have a toy uh, vacuum cleaner that doesn't do any good, but I think it's a way we're kind of maybe like smoothly tricking our kids into thinking that kind of stuff is cool. Uh, I now know that mowing is not cool. It's not cool at all. It's no fun at all. There's this beautiful thing that I got to enjoy. Even though it was work for me at the time, I was just enjoying walking in the footsteps of the one who completed this arduous task in my place. And all that was left for me was to just bounce around behind him with a plastic lawnmower and enjoy the beautiful weather. I didn't break a sweat or get dirty. And what an amazing invitation Jesus has given to us that is infinitely greater and infinitely more transformative than me following my dad as he's mowing. That our God, knowing our broken estate, sent His Son to bring His kingdom to life, to accomplish all the hard work on our behalf, to follow the rules and to follow the law that you and I cannot so that all that's left for you and me to do is to joyfully walk in His footsteps and enjoy the fruits of His labor. So let's set our minds on that. Let's set our hearts on that which Jesus has done for us. Because it will last and give Him and us, apparently, shared glory forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you were good and merciful. Uh, We thank you that uh, instead of shaming us in our helpless estate, uh, you chose to join us there uh, so that when we look to Jesus, we don't look to someone who doesn't know how we feel, but instead we have a high priest that knows exactly what it means to feel brokenness and pain and even death. In light of that, though, we thank you that uh, that's not the end. Uh, Death doesn't get the last word. And so now that we've died, not just a death in this world, but we've died with Christ, he who is the firstborn of the dead gets the last say over death. So if there's some of us maybe in this room, and this is a hard concept to even begin to believe, would you right now begin to open their hearts and open their eyes that they might see that you have done for us you have given to us that which we could never accomplish for ourselves. And all that's left for us to do now is to receive it as a gift, to believe it and walk as though it's true. We do so imperfectly because even though it's already happened and for those of us who are in Christ, we now, that, we now know that we're united with him. We know that it's imperfect, that it's, this is a process that you're still playing out in our lives and you've given us the people around us to encourage us on that journey. So if there's maybe someone in this, uh, in this room, and that just seems hard to believe, would you now just begin to like, crack their eyes open that they might see the possibility that there's something bigger going on, that there really is something deeper, that that longing in our hearts for something greater and something more is not an accident, it's not a personality flaw, but it's something that you've created in us to long for that which is deeper and greater, to long for our home, to long for our communion with you, and to long for your presence forever and ever. Would you show us that this has already been given to us and made available to us in Jesus? All that's left for us to do is to trust it. And for some of us, uh, we already believe that. We know that's true, but we're just not walking in that. Our, man, as much as we know that's true, that's not where our focus is. Our eyes are on something else. Our eyes are on the things that we have our hands on right now. Our eyes are not on that which is above and greater and eternal, and our eyes are fixated on Pleasures and lusts and trinkets and things that are destined to a landfill. God, forgive us for that. We confess that to you. Those things are not worthy of you. We want to let go of those things. We want to let go of them to lay hold of Christ and the treasure that he has for us. Maybe if there's a step that we need to take to make that public, maybe for some of us it's baptism to identify, I am dead, I am buried, I'm drowning in the water, but I'm not going to stay there because of Christ. Christ. Maybe if that's a step that some of these uh, people, they need to make that. Maybe there's some of us that maybe there's a conversation that we need to have with a close friend or with a loved one, a family member that says, "Look, I've 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 failed to do this. I've I've failed to see what's bigger and greater. I want to do this with you, and I want I want to see this." If that's the case, God, let us be obedient, knowing that we can't do it. We're just following in, in our in the footsteps of that which you've done for us, celebrating joyfully that it's done, it's finished on our behalf. We love you for all these things in Jesus' name, amen.